Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you for joining us again. Another bright, bright, sunshiny day in uh, Friday in the Big Town in Oklahoma City. Uh, I am joined today by uh, one co-host, Dr. Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Besides, as we've both already joked, we are watching democracy crumble in the midst of a global pandemic and a heat wave. People are drowning around the country. Things are getting worse. That's what the the crawl at the bottom of the news screen should say. Things are getting worse. It's not great, Bob. It's not great. <laughs> what a way to start the show, though. <laughs> um, however, it is a holiday weekend. Uh, shout out to all of our friends um, in the labor community, um, both now and in years past. Thank you for your work and service. And people, this weekend is Labor Day. Um, take a few minutes, if you haven't already, to read about the history of the holiday uh, and learn its origins. We think it's important. Um, also, conveniently, later in the show, we'll be joined by the Labor Commissioner. I didn't even plan that, but that really works out well that she's on on Labor Day weekend. For real? I thought that was on purpose. I thought that's the reason that why we were going to be joined by her today. No, we actually rescheduled from an earlier date, but this maybe she thought of that. We'll ask her in a few minutes when, when we bring her on. Um, but yeah, so Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne will be joining us in a few minutes. And Scott, wow, we've got a second guest this week who is already uh, waiting in the wings here, uh, attorney Melanie Rugani. Hello, Melanie. Hey, and Scott, how are you? Excellent. We've gotten better just since the beginning of the show. Yeah, it's already things are already looking up. Things are already looking up. I'm not even drinking today. Things are looking up. <laughs> All right. Um, Melanie's here because uh, listeners in today's show, we we might address briefly some of the current events of Oklahoma politics, but we are going to uh, discuss some of the current events of Texas politics today. And in doing so, I fear, <laughs> I suspect that we are also looking into a crystal ball for the future of Oklahoma politics. Scott, is that a, a fair uh prediction? Yeah, 100%. I would take <laughs> I would take I would take those odds. Um and you know, it is I think I I think I would say it is yeah, it is Texas politics, but it also has national implications, not just for Oklahoma but for, for states around the country for for a bunch of reasons. Um you know, we're we're going to we're going to dig into uh, Senate Bill 8, which is a bill that went into effect yesterday in the state of Texas. Um, the bill itself is a is a bill that deals with abortion. I, I'm going to say at the outset, we're not focusing on abortion today. We could have a whole episode or a series of episodes or an entire podcast talking about the abortion debate. Really, what we're going to focus on today is how this bill is structured and what the legal, like what the legal um, kind of mechanisms are within the bill and how they might be used in Oklahoma and other states for the legislature to accomplish goals that have traditionally been stymied by uh, the courts. Um, so I just want to put that out there that it, it is like it's a Texas bill that was that was addressed in, in, in some way by the Supreme Court this week. But it I think I think you're 100% right. It has profound implications for for Oklahoma and, and other states around the country. And not just for abortion, potentially, but for uh, any number of issues. And, yeah, for and sure. So in our in our perpetual quest, listeners, to to help you understand not just what happened, um, but the implications of what's happening in the world around you, um, we're gonna have this conversation. So, uh, 
I, I will open with a brief overview on the chance that someone out there listening to this is not yet familiar with the law. Maybe you saw the headlines and just thought, I can't even deal. I can't even, as the kids say, uh, with this. So as you said, it was Senate Bill 8, and it was a um, – the law essentially – golly, I when we get into the, what the law does, it's a whole other like – a whole other – wagon full of bananas That's yeah i mean looking that up it's because it it's a, as, as scott described it to me it's a uh, a bill that makes neighbors into spies and bounty hunters against their neighbors right it's kind of aimed at at getting you to rat out your neighbors for a for a cash prize if you report them um and as we get into the discussion, the like the legal mechanism, the procedure there is that it relies on civil lawsuits, not criminal lawsuits. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just I'll just start talking and Melanie, when I say something wrong, if you'll just jump in and, and tell me what I got wrong, that would be that would be appreciated. The there's I think there's what the bill does is the first thing the bill does is it it outlaws abortion after now. I'm also gonna caveat we're going to speak in like, especially with the abortion part, we're going to speak in pretty gross generalizations. Even the abortion part of the bill is like really complicated in terms of the, the way that it works and some of the, like the particulars to it. But broadly speaking, the aim of the bill is to outlaw abortions that take place after the fetal, a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is somewhere around the, about six weeks of pregnancy. And that's when something like 90% of women in Texas have abortions that take place after that. So this would outlaw the vast majority of abortions that are, that take place in the state of Texas, right? Oftentimes what happens, well, okay. So <laughs> to do this, to do this would be unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which are the two cases that I think govern most of abortion law in the US right now, right? And so right now, that part of the law on its face should be unconstitutional. And ultimately people are gonna wanna see like, does that part of the law hold up or not? Oftentimes what happens when a statute gets passed that um, does something that looks like it goes against current Supreme Court precedent, or maybe people think it's unconstitutional or whatever, is they say, I want to, I'm, I'm going to file a lawsuit to see if I can stop this law from being enforced before it takes effect, right? However, you can't sue the state of Oklahoma or the state of Texas or the state of New York, right? There's a rule, sovereign immunity, that says you can't just, you can't sue the state, right? But there was a court case in like 1908, I think, ex parte young. And in that court case, they said that you to get around sovereign immunity, what you do is you don't sue the state, you sue the officer of the state who is charged with enforcing that particular law. The governor or the AG or, yeah, whoever, yeah. or whoever, right? And so that's why when you hear us talk about Supreme Court cases, you anybody talk about Supreme Court cases, it doesn't usually say, you know, Scott Melson versus Oklahoma. It says like Melson versus like some person's name even mcgurt right the original mcgurt case wasn't called mcgurt it was called something else right but then the the officer that was involved changed and so the name of the like court changed it wasn't against the state of oklahoma it was this person right so in order to get around that and make this law very very difficult for people to challenge in court the texas state legislature did something that depending on your perspective is either maybe like genius, maybe evil, maybe both. They said that this law cannot be enforced by any member of the like Texas state government, right? It cannot be enforced by any state officer. Because in doing so, it would be unconstitutional. Well, in doing so, there would be a vehicle that you could challenge it in court, right? right? right. 
Right. But since it's a recognition can't... that it's unconstitutional, and so they're just like, well, let's just not do that part. I would say it's not a recognition that it's unconstitutional. It's a recognition that it would be vulnerable to that that particular kind of legal okay. challenge. That's fair. Um, and so and so what they did instead is they say instead enforcement of this law is up to the private citizens of Texas who are now allowed to bring civil lawsuits against anybody suspected of providing or aiding or abetting or obtaining an abortion. And if they win those lawsuits, they're entitled to a finder's fee, a bounty, whatever you want to call it, of not less than $10,000. And what this does is it makes it really, really difficult to try and file a lawsuit before the law goes into effect to stop it from taking effect because it's not clear who you would sue, right? Right, right? Like if I was a doctor who performed abortions, I'm not, but if I was, right, and I was worried that this was going to affect my ability to do that job, who do I sue to stop this lock? From, I, I could sue you, Andy, but I I mean, if, but if it, I never report someone or try to, if I never act on anything, then. It's, but it's not even that. Even if I sue you, even if I sue you and I win, there's three, there's 3.9999998 other million Oklahomans who also have the ability to enforce the law against me. So what makes you special that I should sue you instead of suing everybody? And you can't sue everybody. So this law is designed to be very difficult to challenge. Um, some groups some some groups that uh, work with abortion providers and, and, and some abortion providers and clinics in Texas, they try to challenge the law anyway through a very like complicated procedural mechanism that I do not fully understand and I don't think is super important for our discussion today. But suffice it to say, they went through a bunch of stuff and it wound up at the Supreme Court who on Tuesday at midnight, Wednesday at midnight, when the law was supposed to take effect, did nothing. Like they did not grant this petition that was being sought for emergency relief of some kind. And the law was allowed to go into effect. And then yesterday we had opinions from, I think it was yesterday, right? We had yesterday we had opinions from Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Breyer. So Chief Justice Roberts and the three like liberal justices all dissenting and saying we think we should not have done this. Um, the law has now gone into effect, and we'll see what happens. Melanie, is that an accurate summation of like where we're at now? I think it's a very accurate summation. I would add two things though. The law does not just allow you to bring a lawsuit against people who have aided and abetted the seeking of an abortion or who have performed an abortion. It also has a provision that allows you to bring a lawsuit against anyone who intends to engage in that conduct. So if you intend to aid and abet an abortion, someone can sue you for $10,000, at least $10,000. There's no maximum, just a minimum. The other thing I would note is that the law has what I'll call a super fee shifting provision. So a successful bounty hunter can get their $10,000 win in the lawsuit, but then they also get attorney's fees. Um, on the other hand, if a defendant is sued in court and they win, they do not get attorney's fees. Also, even worse than that, <laughs> if anyone challenges the law, the law has a provision that holds them jointly and severally liable with any attorneys and any parties who sue to prevent that law from taking effect. Um, and they are also liable for the attorney fees of the plaintiff. So it's maybe the most draconian fee shifting 
provision I've seen. Also, it allows you to bring this lawsuit in any court in Texas, where, including where the plaintiff lives. And so you get to pick your court and often pick your judge. That seems not great. So <laughs> it, it is impressive the completeness of how bad this is, I think. So to, just to reiterate that, there's um, there's an incentive for someone to file lawsuits, both because they can get they can get money, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, like whatever the you know they aim for, and they get attorneys' fees. And there's not a penalty if they lose, right? And so there's no reason for them not to try. Now, to, Melanie, to go back to the intent part, anyone who intends to aid and abet. Now, well, the aid and abetting thing is also nebulous, right? People have have commented like does that mean an uber driver who drove someone does there have to you know what if they didn't know they were driving someone to the clinic you know what if it's someone who lent someone a phone for them to make a phone call you know or any any minute detail of this um it is not well articulated what constitutes aiding and abetting in the law and if someone intends to how do you prove that intent like it seems it sounds like there would almost be a way to sue someone for their thoughts right i think proving um is not the point it's the <laughs> it's the bringing of the lawsuit it's the it's not even the bringing of the lawsuit so much as the threat of bringing of the lawsuit because just the knowledge that you are opening yourself up to multiple lawsuits of at least $10,000 a pop plus attorney's fees. I mean, lawsuits are extremely expensive if you want to defend yourself. Um, that's enough in most cases to prevent people from wanting to take risky action. So we've already seen abortion clinics in Texas have closed their doors to anyone who is beyond six weeks of pregnancy. And keep in mind, Six weeks sounds like a long time, but Scott, I'm sure you can explain this a lot more, but it's six weeks from the last menstrual period and that's set out in the law. And so that's really two weeks after you've missed your period, if your periods are perfectly regular and goodness, I never thought I'd be discussing periods on a podcast, but here we are. Um, so it's effectively that's any abortions in Texas, um, which means no one is going to take the risk knowingly take the risk of driving someone to an abortion clinic or paying for someone to go to an abortion clinic or, I mean, certainly performing abortions. And that's the point. Right. It's, it's designed to be a, a really big deterrent, like an, an, an almost complete deterrent. No, I would, I wouldn't have said almost completed a complete deterrent. Um, so, so, you know, we could talk, we could talk a lot about this and like honestly we could have a whole series or or an entire an entire podcast that's dedicated to just discussing the 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 abortion you know debates over abortion policy to me there's really there's two things again big picture and with my non-lawyer brain there's two things about this law that that seem like need to be addressed like one one is the constitutionality of the abortion ban like is the court going to uphold um, the precedent set in Roe and Casey, or are they not? Um, and I think that could be answered in this case, but it could also be answered in another case, Dobbs, that the court has agreed to hear and will probably rule on next year in June. So there's going to be an answer, I think, in the near future to what the court 
under this current um, this current group of justices is going to do or not do with respect to abortion law in the U.S. The second question, though, is this framework, this idea that it, is it are you allowed to craft a law that is specifically designed to evade judicial review? Right. Are you allowed are, are legislators, are legislatures allowed to write and pass laws that are specifically designed not to be subject to challenges in court and therefore citizens have no recourse if they feel that this law is I don't know what I don't know what the term would be, but if they if they think the law is wrong, bad, unfair, unconstitutional, whatever, is this gonna be something that we see moving forward? legislatures around the country, including places like Oklahoma, apply not just to abortion, but like, is there something that could stop? Is there something that could stop uh, the, the le state legislature in New York from saying um, no one is allowed to own handguns? And if you buy a handgun or are suspected of owning a handgun or sell someone a handgun or help someone get a handgun, um, you you can't the state of New York can't do anything to you. But any citizen in New York can sue you in civil court um, and, and if you are found to own or have purchased or helped someone buy a handgun, you, you get a $10,000, you know, they, they have to pay you a $10,000 fine. Like, is there, or, or is there anything, is there anything that could stop the Oklahoma legislature from saying, uh, private employers are not allowed to mandate vaccines. Um, and any citizen is allowed to sue any employee of any organization that mandates vaccines, um, for $10,000, right? Like, is this kind of framework something that we can expect to see moving forward? And does the court, like, are the courts equipped for this? Um, because I've seen, I, I've read a lot about this in the last couple of days. And I've read from people as progressive as Ian Milheiser at Vox, who I think is really smart, but is like <laughs> pretty progressive. I've read some folks on reason.com. I've been listening to a podcast. I've talked to really smart, really conservative lawyers that I know. And I, 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 I hear some people that say, yeah, that's a danger. But then I hear some people that say like, I mean, you know, maybe like the, the court acted appropriately by not stopping this because this, the, the law is functioning the way it was designed. Melanie, what do you, what's your thought to that? That's a big question. <laughs> well, the law is functioning the way it was designed um, to evade judicial review. There's no question about that. I do not think it will continue that way. I think when this ultimately reaches the court that's going to decide the issue, they will not decide that they are powerless to enforce constitutional rights when the legislature is tricky. However, um, right now we're dealing with time. And so you think, you think about where this lawsuit is. Um, I think a lot of people think this was like an emergency situation that yeah, they waited until the very last minute to seek emergency relief from the Supreme Court. That's not how this lawsuit happened. This law was passed in May in Texas, and in July, uh, groups challenged it in federal district court in Texas. And that court, I think, well, I should say they challenged it in Texas, and the defendants filed a motion to dismiss based on sovereign immunity, what you were talking about earlier. And that's the question that was initially before this district court, um, it ruled, I think correctly, that some of the defendants that they had sued, like the judges, were immune. 
but others like court clerks and one individual citizen that they sued for this reason um, were not. And that question then got appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which did nothing. It sat on it for months. And I think everyone kind of assumed, well, you know, they'll act before this law goes into effect because it's plainly unconstitutional. Uh, but it didn't. They drew a unique panel on the Fifth Circuit uh, that sat on it. But because it was on appeal, the district court in Texas didn't have the ability to go ahead and hold a preliminary injunction hearing and stop this law from taking effect. It was kind of in purgatory in the Fifth Circuit. And so it wasn't until a few days before the law was to take effect that it became clear that the Fifth Circuit was going to continue to sit on it. And so the plaintiffs sought emergency relief in the Supreme Court. That's how it ended up on the court's shadow docket. It's emergency docket um, where there's no, I mean, it's kind of superficial briefing. There's no oral argument. It's not your normal judicial process that we see every year in the Supreme Court and that the court's going to do here in a couple months in the Dobbs case in Mississippi. Um, by letting the, in, in a normal circumstance, I mean, you've seen the Supreme Court act on an emergency basis recently on laws that they didn't like. And so we've had lots of shadow docket rulings recently in the COVID and religious liberty spheres. We've had a recent shadow docket ruling um, preventing a change in the law on the Remain in Mexico policy, um, allowing, preventing that from taking effect. The court could have acted had they wanted to. Um, and I think that if the law had been a law banning handguns um, and allowing bounty hunters to uh, go after handgun owners, the court could have acted. There's nothing that prevents the court from using its authority to prevent a law from taking effect temporarily until it can have a proper merits briefing and argument and the normal process of a case. It does that all the time. It just chose not to here. And that's the real problem for I think a lot of people who are watching this, because while the court did not strike down Roe versus Wade um, Wednesday night, it had that effect in Texas, right? Women cannot get an abortion in Texas. And it foreshadowed how they view this particular right. Because if it was a fundamental right, um, fundamental constitutional right, like the court said in Roe and Casey, that's something that the court routinely stops and stays uh, laws that violate that or potentially violate that to let the normal merits process take effect. They didn't do that here, which to me says they don't consider this a fundamental right anymore. Devil's advocate. So what what would you say to the idea that, okay, you're right, like in the Remain of Mexico, in the landlord's eviction case, in the, in the COVID's uh, religious case, the court acted on it, shadow docket, they issued emergency orders, but even in those cases, they shouldn't have, right? The, the, the way that the judicial process should function is that the, the normal role should play out in all but the most extraordinary circumstances. And the way that the judicial process works is for better or for worse, you know, a law gets passed, there's a challenge. And while the legal process is playing out, there are people who have rights violated and that's terrible for those people. However, that's what happens. Like that's how the judicial process works. So I, you know, what would you say to the argument that like, this is the court showing the kind of restraint 
that it should always show. I like that devil's advocate position. I, there are a lot of problems with the shadow docket, for sure. Um, in fact, I think there's congressional hearings about it that are happening pretty soon because it's been used so often lately. But that said, there is very clear uh, law that says in situations where we aren't sure about the outcome of a case, uh, you typically want to try to maintain the status quo until it can be resolved. And so we issue preliminary injunctions fairly often if the plaintiffs can show both a likelihood of success on the merits and irreparable harm if the law is allowed to take effect here. It's quite clear that this law is unconstitutional under Roe and Casey. If that is still the law, they have a you know, 99% chance of likelihood of success on the merits if that remains law. There's also very clear irreparable harm in that people who are trying to exercise their current fundamental right to abortion can't do so. Um, in any normal world, that would be enough to get a preliminary injunction to prevent that law from taking effect while we can debate in a proper forum the merits of that law. So then is it reasonable to say, since it doesn't seem like there would be much argument against the idea that the that that there's irrep- irreparable harm here, that in fact, the justices, the five who declined to intervene, actually don't think that there is much likelihood of success on the merits? Interesting. So what is... In terms of the, in terms of the, like the structure of this, right? The, the, there's the fundamental idea that like, as a legislature, we want to write a law that uses like this kind of mechanism to evade judicial like review. What is the, if you're a judge and you're looking at this case, like, what do you point to in the constitution, in existing law, in Supreme court precedent, what is the justification that a judge could use to say, no, Oklahoma state legislature, no, New York state legislature, whoever, you're not allowed to write laws that do this? What's the, right? Like, because it's not in the Constitution, <laughs> I don't think. And and then. And then the states write the other laws, right? So, so if you're so if you're a judge, and and I mean, does that question make sense? Like, what is the what is the legal justification for a judge? Because that's my fear is that you're going to come in front of a bunch of judges who are like, I mean, yeah, this is not great, but uh, there's nothing that says they can't do that, and because we're judges, we're not allowed to just say. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we don't we don't write the laws. How do you, what's the legal justification to strike down the enforcement mechanism? So there are a whole lot of cases that stand for the general proposition that you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly, um, particularly in state court, which have general jurisdiction um, and authority to fashion remedies that go beyond what federal courts can do. Uh, I think you can fashion particularly temporary relief uh, to prevent a law from taking effect while you allow it to be challenged. That being said, I think tomorrow or you know sometime soon, someone's going to challenge this law not preemptively. Someone is going to set up 
a lawsuit where uh, someone friendly files a bounty lawsuit, someone has to defend that lawsuit. They're represented by an army of lawyers and they try to get uh, the law struck down by using Roe and Casey as a defense. However, while they're doing that, the law is in effect. So the problem is, can we challenge it facially um, before the law takes effect? And I think there are mechanisms to do that, particularly in state court, um, because we know that the effect and the purpose of that law is unconstitutional. Um, if California were to ban handguns and say, you know, deputize basically their citizens to go out and enforce that handgun ban, they have in effect deputized state officers. So I would say file a lawsuit, seek a declaratory judgment that that is unconstitutional as a violation of the Second Amendment and get the court to issue injunctive relief on the grounds that the, you know, the state can't do indirectly what it can do, what it can't do directly. Um, you know, ultimately this is going to get challenged one way or another, probably on the back end. Um, but I think you will see a lot of courts initially friendly to the you know, evil genius federal society trick. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I'm, I mean, cause I'm even what, you know, cause you're right. I mean, the, you know, the gun question I think is there's clear, you know, constitutional like issues there. I'm just even wondering about, you know, like, so like vaccines, right? Like I, do you, anybody think it would be beyond uh, the folks at 23rd Lincoln to pass a law structured exactly like this, but instead it's employers can't mandate vaccines and you can sue anybody who works for, you know, an organization that mandates vaccines in addition to the business owner or the business itself. Like, is there, and that I don't, maybe there's a constitutional, maybe there's a constitutional argument behind that. Is there any reason they couldn't pass a law like that? Or what would be the justification? Is there a justification that a judge would have to say, no, you can't write that law? No. Um, but there you're not dealing with a plainly unconstitutional law. Um, the problem with you know, the abortion law, the gun law, is that it's plainly unconstitutional to do the substantive aspect of that. Right. So you could, you could use this mechanism to write laws that might be really unpopular um, or, dangerous. Or, or, or dangerous or difficult. You could use this to write a law that would be difficult for the state to enforce, but doesn't have a constitutional, um, a constitutional question attached to it and use this as the enforcement mechanism. That is terrifying. Yeah. So, <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to, this has been a fascinating conversation. I kind of just sat back and let the two of you get after it. But um, as we transition um, to our next guest in here in just a moment, I, I my takeaway is that this reminds me of the atomic bomb, right? Like with great power comes great responsibility. And suddenly when the rules of engagement are changed, everyone like takes a deep breath and has to figure out what does this mean and how do we proceed forward, right? Like if, once this power has been unleashed, um, once you know, we have this law that is on the books, that is structured in this way with the intent of evading judicial review, if the content of it, if the purpose of, of a future law is not something as directly unconstitutional, um, then it makes it that much harder. And so 
I think the analogy of the of the gun law and uh, or potential gun law in California is a good um, kind of uh, antithesis, right? But it really, when you think of the possibilities out there, whether it's vaccines, uh, what if they pass a law that makes it, you know, like something to do with taxation, at raising them or not raising them? Like there's there's really no end to the potential, and I I think the argument. Well, the takeaway for me, right, is that once the standards, once the the social contract of our democracy begins to break down, uh, all hell breaks loose, sometimes more quickly than we anticipate. It's a great time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Melanie, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break. Before we go to our next guest, uh, so after the music, we'll be joined by Labor Secretary, excuse me, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne. We'll be right back. All right, we're back uh, and we're joined now by Oklahoma Commissioner of Labor, Leslie Osborne. Hello, Commissioner Osborne. Welcome back to the program. Hello, thanks for having me again. Uh, I appreciate this fortuitous mistake to have you on on Labor Day weekend. And before we get into it, I'm just going to acknowledge to our listeners that my neighbor just set up his ladder and is now trying to start his leaf blower. So if you follow me on Instagram, I'll have a video of that shortly. Um, <laughs> but also I may have to mute intermittently as, as he uh, blows around the leaves on this very windy day. Um, anyway. Uh, Commissioner Osborne, it's been, gosh, uh, almost four years, I think, since you were last on the program, because it was before your election. Um, and so we want to know what's been happening at the Department of Labor here in Oklahoma over the last few years. Well, uh, the Department of Labor is one of those quiet agencies you don't hear a lot about that does a lot of good things with a small footprint. We only have 80 state employees. We're one of the 64 appropriated agencies. So pretty small footprint, but we're basically tasked with safety of citizens, things from checking public access elevators and escalators to amusement park rides to commercial grade hot water heaters and boilers, multiple things. But we also keep uh, an eye on safe workplaces. OSHA can come into any business in the state of any state and drop in and make sure that conditions are safe for workers. Uh, that's not us. That's the Federal Department of Labor. But what we have is a proactive program that only seven states offer where we will go out and build a safety plan uh, with OSHA trained employees with a business that invites us in to uh, keep their employees safe, uh, which is a good thing. We'll help implement it, help train the employees. You know, if there's caustic materials, you're checking the ventilation. If there's heavy duty equipment, making sure all the proper guards are on it, that we don't have exits blocked, you know, just multiple things that can happen, particularly in small burgeoning businesses. And uh, we also make sure that people are paid their wages. If you work for any business in Oklahoma that did not pay you your wages, we can actually take care of that as well with administrative law judges that come in, have hearings, no cost to the consumer. So we basically make sure you're safe and paid. So that's kind of a nice mission. That's absolutely incredible. Um, I know I didn't know all of that stuff, and I'd wager that most of our listeners did either. Scott, were you aware of all those duties of the Labor Department? I was not, and I just got to say, I love government. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, because it 
it is a tremendous example of a state agency that serves not just an important role, but multiple very important roles for how business gets done in our state. And as we all know, Oklahoma is open for business. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, we we don't want to be above the fold in the Oklahoma and the Tulsa world for anything scandalous at any of our agencies, which occasionally will happen with anything in government or with people in government. But when you're just quietly out there doing the work that keeps the uh, fabric of society going, uh, that should be the goal, not only of people like me in the executive branch, but also of the legislature where, you know, for a long time, I've advocated that we are sending many people to the legislature, and I can speak to this as a former 10-year member of the House of Representatives, that want to save our souls instead of working on making sure that we have a fabric of society. Uh, my belief is that the United States was founded on the separation of church and state, and that it is not our job to decide what you do in your bedrooms, what you do in your personal life, and that's only good so long as the government agrees with your lifestyle. And be careful because that uh, that can change to where it is something you're not so happy about when you've endorsed it. And that's hypocrisy. So my hope is we get back to electing legislators that uh, that will actually work on things like good schools, system of infrastructure, mental health systems, the kind of things we have to have to keep society going, businesses flourishing, citizens doing better and leave the uh, soul saving to the pulpit on Sunday. You know, I think I just got a little misty over here. Just listening to you say that. Uh, I mean, oh, that's just, man, that sounds nice. You got to be careful what you wish for, though. Should the legislature ever legalize sex work in Oklahoma, suddenly uh, your job as labor commissioner would be involved in what people do in their bedrooms. That is true, but that has not been on the radar, and I'm not sure I appreciate you putting it out there where it's a possibility. I don't think that's anything that will ever be. There's no interim studies coming about that this year, for okay, sure. Okay, good. So, Commissioner, you, you've been in the job now for three years, right? Three, three yeah, years. I'll be up for my second term. You know, all statewide offices, there's 11 of us, and we all serve two terms. Uh, are possible. So I'll be running again to be on the ballot a year from November. So yeah, almost three years. What's, uh, what's your, what's your pitch? You've been, you've, you've, you, you had a pitch when you were running for it the first time. What's your, what's your pitch for running for, for the second time? What, what have you, what do you feel like is your, uh, what do you, what do you want to point to for the folks in Oklahoma to, to hire you again? I think that the main thing would be, um, to keep working on the things we're doing. Like I said, a very low cost footprint for the citizens, for what we do for safe workplaces and safe citizens uh, out just in their normal walk of life. But I also have done some digging into and I have some collaborations going with the career tech system on critical workforce needs. Not necessarily our statutory um, duties, but it fits with labor. And, uh, you know, right now, for instance, the, you know, the average age of a plumber in Oklahoma is 59. This is a huge problem. This means that we are not educating enough young people to be able to take over at some point, and particularly in our 75 rural counties. Only two of our career techs offer plumbing um, degrees. And for, you know, for that training there, but there's also multiple trade groups that have apprenticeships, but we often have the disconnect of what are the critical needs where you can find a job and be well compensated. Uh, and with high school counselors and parents getting that message to the kids that are graduating. 
And um, so I've been partnering with Marcy Mack on some ideas at Department of Commerce. I mean, I'm sorry, Department of Career Tech on perhaps a couple of times a year, getting high school counselors in one time of the year and high school ag teachers in another time of the year. I know my kids graduated from Amber Pocasset, 33 and 35 in their class and they're ag teachers. They were both farm kids and they uh, were president of their FFA chapter and all those kind of things. But those uh, people can have as big of an influence on those rural kids, which have learned the work ethic that's needed that is so sorely lacking sometimes. If these kids have been up at six in the morning with stock show projects for six or eight years, they already have the work ethic. But sometimes they don't have the wherewithal and the um, options put out in front of them in a manner that they need to. So we've got to get to that segment and uh, we're working on that. So I think that's kind of an exciting uh, area to work on and we're gonna keep doing that. You know, I also get to chair the Occupational Licensure Commission. So we review every occupational license in the state once every four years. This is the fourth year. So we'll start over again next year. We have 210 jobs in this state that require a license to work. That's pretty average, but we have gotten down quite a few that we didn't think needed to be there and made them certifications or sign up papers, whatever it is. But we're down to the ones that really need a bit of oversight for safety, uh, public safety and integrity of the trade. So I'd say that's a couple of areas that we've focused on a bit because they really don't need me out checking elevators. That's not my forte. So I have been working on some of this other thing. That, that's fascinating. I, uh, I'm i glad you brought up the occupational licensing because uh, I, I saw a headline about that a few weeks ago and, and wanted to ask some more about it. Now, occupational licensing, um, that's things like, um, uh, oh, well, give us some examples of the ones that you guys changed to certification. Actually, we'll there. actually, you know, that's everything professional to what we would call non-professional. So this could be anything from plumbers to electricians to hairdressers to medical doctors. Okay. I was going to say, I think both Scott and I are people who have uh, some sort of professional license. Scott is a physician. I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, and I had my plumber here just the other day, who I will say is a 30-year-old woman. And I guess business is good because she just bought a new truck. She was very excited about it. Absolutely. It's a great field to go into. And that's where we just have to educate kids about the opportunities available to them. They would actually have no debt and be able to be you know, licensed in a year or two, making great wages. That's really great. You mentioned that some of the licenses uh, got changed to a certification or a sign-off paper. What are? Do you have any examples of of which ones so those when are? We, when I came in, this had this program had really just been started from legislation for with the prior commissioner, and there were over five hundred listed in the website. We're down to two ten now. A lot of those were cleaning up in that they were things that really were just a registry. For instance, FEMA keeps a national list of trailer houses because they seem to be a magnet, as we know in Oklahoma. And so uh, in case there's any kind of disaster, they have those kind of things. That was a registry that was through the Manufactured Homes Association. That was never a job, never should have been listed on there, was never whatever. Uh, something that should have been included. But for instance, one that was and got quite a bit of media a few years ago was hair braiders. And it was like, okay, do we really need to be licensing hair braiders? Or is that just something you could take a 
a day course and have a certification. Well, when we shine a little light on these groups, they're usually willing to make those changes themselves. And we don't even have to recommend legislation. That's what we do as a body is make recommendations to the legislature. But most of them have been under the direction of the boards that handle those things. And they've been willing to work with us to make sure their costs are commensurate with what the service is, that they don't have too much overhead, that they're not requiring a ridiculous amount of education that would be over and above what was needed to maybe keep people out of their industry. Uh, you know, overall, most of them are run by very reasonable boards and have citizen rep re uh, citizen representation as well as members of the trade. And that's another thing we like to look for. So to me, it's just been a really nice look at what's out there. It's also a great access database. It's on our uh, on our website at the Department of Labor for somebody that would like to just look at job options. And it has a quick link to every place. You know, if say you wanted to be a licensed professional counselor, click on that, it goes to there. It shows you exactly what kind of training you would need, education what it would cost to license, you know, all these kind of things. So it's also just a good database to have out there, particularly for, like I said, again, high school counselors, career counselors, for people looking for a different type of uh, job. They're not happy with their quote unquote dead end job kind of thing. That's a, that's really cool. I'm going to check that out just because I'm curious and interested. Um, you know, you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned the hair braiding because I remember the media coverage about that a few years ago and that, there was this uh, conversation about occupational licenses and why we had them for some um, some fields like that, where there were rules in place that might prevent people from getting jobs um, under the auspices of some sort of license, but related to their criminal justice history, right? So if someone had certain charges in their background, they're not allowed to hold certain positions. Uh, and some of those make sense, but a lot of them don't. What's the role of the Department of Labor uh, in in shaping that kind of conversation around uh, around it's working, jobs? It's working with those stakeholders, and like I say, it's it's a strange thing in that statutorily, it's not really the Department of Labor, but statutorily, it is that the Commissioner of Labor does chair this commission. So we do use some of our resources for that, but the vast majority is more volunteer type thing. But um, that being said there are people that think we need no licenses, just like there are some people that think we need no government. But my my belief on that is, okay, that's fine, but how are we going to educate and, and you know, in all 77 counties, how are we going to have a system of infrastructure? Who's going to build our roads and bridges? There are these certain things you must have. And when you do have a licensing entity, there is some form of accountability. If, a, if an anesthesiologist loses six patients on the table in a month, we probably are going to be getting complaints. We're going to be doing something to make sure there's no substance abuse. There's nothing like that. Same way with a lot of the the other professions, you know, background checks. So we did work with Representative Zach Taylor two years ago who ran a bill that made every state agency that licensed take out of their wording that they couldn't have a blanket a blanket stop on you working in that field if you had a uh, felony conviction. So that was removed from everybody's. Now, the exception because we had to utilize it as well, because we licensed some entities from welders to alarm and locksmith at Department of Labor. If it was something that was heinous, as in, you know, murder, rape, those types of things, there were some exceptions. 
and if it was particular to your field. So we licensed Alarm and Locksmith. We felt that it was important not to have somebody with breaking and entering in that one, but it wouldn't necessarily be something that would stop you from being a barber. So that's where you have to use a bit of common sense and there's gray areas there, but I feel real good about the legislation that at least took out the blanket veto of anyone getting into any field that had a felony because you often come up on somebody that got the one DUI in college and has been a great actor ever since. I have no problem with them doing my hair. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's always nice to see uh, government do things that are truly common sense efforts. But now, is it a bit of an oxymoron? Well, it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's uh, like military intelligence and uh, and British fashion, I guess. Um, but <laughs> I so uh, as we uh, kind of near the end of the episode here, looking ahead, um, what should Oklahomans expect to uh, see as outcomes from the Department of, of Labor through the rest of this year and into next year? Well, once again, we're going to try to keep people safe uh, that, you know, for instance, are the people that run the OSHA program that I mentioned earlier on workplace safety have done presentations and uh, we have our first one with the Medical Marijuana Association. We're looking forward to because that can be something where there are uh, particularly in certain areas of it where there are caustic materials carbon dioxide piped into different things. We also met recently with Stephen Buck in the Nursing Home Association, giving CDC type guidelines and things that OSHA does work with, you know, tips on how to be safe in their nursing homes. So we're gonna, you know, because of COVID, we have some areas that have been a little stepped up. Um, and also I do hope that this uh, partnership with Career Tech will take off where we can really do some good in particular on those critical needs jobs, which would be, you know, nursing in particular, and a lot of the trades where we're really seeing shortages coming up. And uh, shout out to your in her 30s plumber. Uh, first of all, also not being the norm, the, what we would have called in the old days, the normal gender for that, but what is normal. And so I love it when I see people in all kinds of occupations where they can go places. Sorry, I thought I was muted. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. Um, uh, Scott, do you have any questions? I had one more, but I want no, no, I just I was gonna say, just listening, you know, Commissioner, listening to you talk, I'm I'm reminded how much we miss having you in the legislature. Um, but I'm very glad that you are over uh over at the at the Labor Department and um doing some really fantastic work, it sounds like. I couldn't agree more, you know, when you're talking about the need for plumbers. I think I don't I don't know the the statistics, you know these better than I, but I would I would guess that that need probably extends throughout a lot of the building trades, right? Like plumbers, electricians, carpenters, roofers, you know, folks, um, um, you know, there's a there's a huge need for for people to fill these jobs that are um, that are technical, that require a lot of critical thinking and sophistication um, that are difficult, um, but also can be really well paying and and rewarding. So I'm I'm super excited to hear that you're making that you've made that uh, such a focus and also appreciate all the work that, you, that you've done on the licensing reform that you mentioned. Thank you for that. All right. Well, our guests today have been uh, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne. Thank you for being here, Commissioner. You bet. I'll come back anytime. You, you need a, a Friday spot with somebody that's willing to banter a bit. All right. Well, that's we every love, week. We, we love banter. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, earlier in the episode, we were joined by attorney Melanie Rugani. Uh, listeners, thanks for being here. Um, we look forward to hearing from you with any questions you have. I think, Scott, um, in a future episode, let's give listeners two weeks. If you have questions about anything to do with Oklahoma government or politics that you would like us to address, please send us an email at podcast at letsfixthis.org podcast at letsfixthis.org uh, and we will get those questions and maybe we'll do a Q&A episode. We haven't done one of those in a couple of years and that was fun last time. Love it. Alright, great. Uh, listeners, uh, stay safe out there. Enjoy the Labor Day weekend. Uh, research the origins of it. Research our state motto and uh, don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up. Thank you.